Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Freckled Foodie and Friends, a podcast focused on making healthy living approachable, hosted by yours truly, Cameron Rogers. Guys, today's guest, I feel like, doesn't even need an intro, but to make sure everyone is aware of who we are speaking to, today I am joined with Danny Meyer, who is the founder and CEO of Union Square Hospitality Group and Shake Shack, everyone's favorite fast casual burger. He is the author of Setting the Table. I mean, he is probably, I don't know who like classifies this, but I would say one of the world's best known restaurateurs. Is that the right word? I mean, he's incredible. He has built such an amazing and inspiring empire. I am such a fan of all of his restaurants. I mean, bury me in Gramercy Tavern, please. He is an incredible mentor, I guess, role model of mine from a distance. Um, I'm fortunate to know him as a family friend and He gave me his very, very important time when I was trying to figure out what the hell I wanted to do with my career, and I'm forever grateful for that. He's just really inspiring and an admirable person, and I really enjoy this interview. I mean, he just has so much knowledge to give us all. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode as much as I did recording it. Without further ado, here is Danny Meyer. Happy Friday, everyone. I hope you had a great week. I am super excited about today's guest. He doesn't need much of an introduction because you all probably know who he is. Danny Meyer, the founder and CEO of Union Square Hospitality Group and Shake Shack, everyone's favorite restaurateur. I'm really bad at saying that word, but you are mine, I know. So welcome, Danny. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you so much. And what a great pleasure to connect with you and I'm not mistaken, you're coming up on your second anniversary. I am. Oh, you're good. It'll probably be right around when this episode releases. So Danny has been a family friend um, of my father, well, a friend of my father, so a family friend of ours. And I always laugh because you are like such prime real estate of seating at our wedding. And there's this one photo that constantly gets reshared among like the planner and the florist and all this of my dad and I walking down the aisle and he has his hand out to high five you. And it's like, you're face is like almost is drawn more to your face than my dad and I because he's hands out. Everyone's like, who is he going to high five? So anytime I look through wedding photos, I'm like, well, there's Danny. Well, so you have to share that with me because I was the one that high fived him. (laughs) (laughs) I'll send it to you. I'll definitely send it to you. Um, So to kick things off, how would you define success? I define success as uh, BS. (laughs) because I think the minute you start feeling successful means you're probably not striving hard enough to find it. But since you're going to press me further, um, (laughs) I think life has so many different aspects to it. And and I used, I used to, if you had asked me this 10 years ago, I, I would have probably said that success is when I achieve a work life balance. And that is impossible. Because work always wants more of you and, and life always wants more of you. So that's just a, that's like trying to reach equilibrium on a seesaw forever. It'll just never happen. And mm-hmm. so what I've learned that is successful for me is when I can find a pretty good balance between four needs I know I have. One is that I'm taking really good care of my need to love and be loved. I'm taking really good care of my body. 
I'm taking really good care of my mind, which sometimes means learning more. And sometimes it means that getting things off my mind yeah. and I'm taking really good care of my uh, spiritual needs, which is the human. Uh, it's for me, spirituality is this uniquely human thing of wondering about things that are more powerful than you are. Some people get it through organized religion. Um, I happen to get mine through nature where I just like, how I did, feel the exact same way. So if I, for me, success is when I say that those that I'm feeding all four of those things, it'll, it's never going to be in balance, but when I'm not feeling successful, it's almost, I can almost always look at one of those things and say, you're not taking good enough care of yourself right now. Or you're not, mm-hmm. you're not realizing that, uh, with all this business stuff you're trying to solve that you're not thinking about, you know, hugging the people you love and who love you enough. So that's, that's kind of where I am. I love that. And it, it reminds me of this, I get, I don't know if it was a Ted talk or what, but my mom once, once referenced it and it was this woman and she had all these buckets in front of her and a big gallon of water. And each bucket was labeled with things that were important to her. So it was spending time with her child, um, date nights with her husband. I'm making these up, but things of that sort. And kind of what you just mentioned, she had a bucket for each thing that really made her happy and filled her up. And she was saying, I'm only happy when all of these buckets have some water, it doesn't have to be completely equal and level, but they're all getting filled. And at some point time is being put into them because I think it's so easy for us, especially in today's world and the hustle of New York to focus solely on our careers and work and maybe one other thing. But as you mentioned, for me, I mean, my mental health is a huge thing for me. I put in so much work into that. And, you know, personal development. And especially right now that I'm in New Jersey, time and nature. And it's so interesting how in flow and aligned you can feel when you're actually putting water in all of those buckets that are important to you and not just focusing on one. I Not only do I fully agree, I wish I had done that TED talk, but um, it sounds really <laughs> effective. But if you think about genu- generally, society seems to look at success in just two of those buckets, which is nonsense, which is right. um, either financial or notoriety. And I think we all know through people we know in the world that um, if that's fine, but if you're not filling those other buckets, who cares? It can almost be worse. Right. You're not happy. So I have so many questions on your career and how you have built such an incredible empire. And I guess I want to start from the beginning because you were potentially going to be a lawyer, correct? Before you opened up Union Square Cafe? Keyword being potentially, yes. (laughs) So what eventually steered you away from... Well, I guess my first question is what led you to that potential path? Like, What made you think that you wanted to be a lawyer? And then what happened? What was the wake-up call that made you completely change paths? Right. So the two two things that led me potentially down that path were um, actually three things. One one was I had been a poli-sci major at Trinity College and loved politics. And so I still love politics. And back in those days, I was actually thinking about maybe I should go into politics someday. I, I'd worked on a ton of campaigns, both uh, as a volunteer growing up in St. Louis, and and then even uh, worked in the U.S. Senate as an intern at the age of 18 uh, for our United States Senator at that time. And, and I worked um, on a, a presidential campaign in a paid position. I got $214 a week as the Cook County wow. uh, Illinois field coordinator for, for the 1980 presidential candidate, independent presidential candidate named John Anderson. And um, so I was thinking, you know what, back then, I never, until Ronald Reagan, I had never heard of any politician who had not first been a lawyer. So I said, well, that's obviously what I'll do. And then the second reason mm-hmm. was, um, cause that's what you're supposed to do. And I, right. Thank goodness came to the conclusion with some, some important help from an uncle of mine that the minute you walk down the path of doing something you quote unquote should do, but it's not something you want to do. 
and something that you know is not actually suited to you is a recipe for a many year lease on a big problem. And so I'm just really grateful that uh, that plus not faring very well on my LSATs, uh, which convinced <laughs> me to not even bother applying anywhere, was probably a really good way to go. Everything happens for a reason, see? And I mean, I feel very in tune with what you just said, because for me, I was on this career path that I just felt was supposed to be what I was supposed to be on. I was an economics major. My parents worked in finance. It was just the next step. And of course, I was going to do it. And similar to, I, I think, in line with the advice your father or your uncle gave you, it hit a point where I was like, I'm not happy doing this. And if I continue to do this, I don't think I'm going to get any happier. And it's just going to continue time and time again. And then you get in so deep, it's hard to pull yourself out of it. And I mean, I met with anyone I could possibly think of in the industry. And thankfully, you were one of the most generous people who gave me your time and a partner of yours to sit down and talk things through with me because I was very much in the stage where I knew I didn't want to be in my career anymore, but I had no idea what was next for me. And I was thinking maybe I wanted to be in the restaurant industry. I honestly didn't know. And I mean, obviously, things have changed and I'm now in this content creation space and I'm so grateful for what I'm doing. But I'm curious, how did you get involved in the restaurant industry? Was food something you always loved? Was it something that you were passionate about and you were just kind of putting on the side to focus on this potential law degree? Uh, the answer is I always was fascinated by food. I remain fascinated by food, but mm -hmm. I wasn't putting it on hold because back in those days, it, it just was not a, a, a really credible or bona fide career choice. Mm -hmm. You know, today... Uh, people didn't know what the word content meant back then. And certainly people right. didn't look at going into the restaurant business as being um, a viable entrepreneurial career choice for someone with a liberal arts education. And it's, that's bizarre to me because today I think it's just as viable as any other entrepreneurial career choice. And so it never, it never crossed my mind and it, it, it didn't cross my mind until the night before taking my LSATs when that very uncle looked at me uh, and he said, you're absolutely crazy to be applying to law school when what you should really be doing is pursuing the thing I've heard you talk about your whole life. And I still didn't know mm -hmm. what he was talking about. And he, he thought I was crazy. He said, all I've ever heard you talk about is food and restaurants. And I, you know, I'm wired um, in a way that, I learn about people through what they eat, how they eat. You know, I, I wrote about this in my book, Setting the Table, because I, I was thinking about my childhood. But I was the really weird kid in second grade that would trade sandwiches or half of a sandwich from my lunchbox so I could see how other people ate. And so I could try different things. I feel the things. exact same way. I'm so interested. And at the end of the show, I, I'll ask the question, but I used the way I would get to know everyone is what are the three ways to your, th to your heart through food? And I was the person on the trading floor that was like, well, what are you having for lunch? What are you ordering? Where are you going? What's your favorite thing there? How'd you hear about this? Where is it? Like, it was all I cared about. And for me, it became so obvious when all of the traders on my desk were like, you realize you talk about food all day long? <laughs> I've never once heard you get excited about the municipal bond market. Like all you ask about is what we're doing for dinner, what everyone's getting for lunch, where our favorite restaurants are. And I was, I realized, yeah, you're, you're kind of right. It's all I do talk about. And that was my first of many red flags, but it's incredible. I would call it, I would call it a green flag, actually. Green flag. That's very true. Yes. I need to rewire that verbiage. Thank you. Um, so when you decided that it was something you wanted to pursue, I mean, the fact that you owned and started and running a restaurant at the age of 27 blows my mind, especially now that we know it's become Union Square Cafe, which is one of my personal favorite restaurants ever. How did that happen from you being in that position right before the LSATs of, oh, maybe this is something I should pursue to then actually opening your own restaurant? Yeah, so the, the Monday after whatever that Saturday was that I took my LSATs, I had already had dinner that the Friday night before that. And I already, it may, I'd like to believe the reason that I did uh, so meaty okrally. See, I'm even using a vegetable in that word. 
on my LSATs is when I took them, I already felt liberated. Um, right. And on that next Monday, I called a good friend of mine from, from college who was a banker. And I said, um, I want to go into the restaurant business and I'd like you to be my partner. You'd be the money guy. Um, he was in a bank training program and I'll be the food guy. And, um, and I, I just learned about this class we can take at the New York restaurant school, which I had learned about in one of those free magazines, like learning annex or something that you would get on the mm-hmm. sidewalks of New York. And we, uh, we took this class, we signed up to take this class called restaurant management 101. Cause I didn't know the first thing about restaurants. And, um, you know, we took like one or two classes together and then his dad found out that he was doing this thing. And, um, his dad said, no member of our family is ever going to go into that rotten business. You get back to your bank. And then I want you applying to business school. Like you said, you're going to do that. Dad is probably biting his tongue now. Dad is uh, (laughs) not with us any longer right now, but, um, so my friend who's still a very, very close friend, uh, went to, uh, he ended up going to business school at Dartmouth, but he, um, he felt so bad about leaving me in the lurch that he connected me with his bank's one restaurant client. Cause back then banks would run the other way. If you said you were going into the restaurant business mm-hmm. and that one restaurant client, um, gave me an interview. It was an Italian seafood restaurant, uh, in what was soon to be called the Flatiron district of New York. Um, and he gave me an interview and the interview was great. I, I passed with flying colors. He was sitting in an empty restaurant midway down a very long bar. And he waved me in from the front door, had me walk up to him slowly, looked me up and down. And he said, you'll do. And that was my interview. <laughs> That's um, it. That was my interview. And uh, I became an assistant lunch manager. Um, I got a big raise. I was getting $250 a week in that job. And I just needed to get this out of my system as to whether Mm -hmm. this itch that I had was solvable by, by trying this. And boy, oh boy, I I loved it. Um, I was only there for a year, less than a year actually. And I, I succeeded at what I wanted to succeed at, which was to find out if this feeling that I had first heard about from my uncle, who had seen it in me my whole life, could actually become something that I would enjoy doing professionally. And um, by the way, uh, the nine months or 10 months that I was there yielded not only an incredible career, but most importantly, that's where I met my future wife. Um, oh, well then see, everything does happen for a reason. And, and this, this wouldn't have happened if I had gotten into law school. It wouldn't have happened if my friend had continued on with me because he never would have introduced me to that restaurant. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yeah, it just, so that worked out as well as it possibly could have. Life does some interesting and magical things. And so, I heard on the How I Built This episode of yours, which is one of my favorite podcasts, and can you remind me the number that you were able to sign for a lease for, what was it, like 14, 20 years or something absurd for a ridiculous price, which would never happen in today's world? Yeah, we, I say we, this (laughs) actually, that was the last time I could say I, because Union Square Cafe was the last restaurant that uh, I did without any other partners. Um, Mm -hmm. so in that restaurant, I bought the remaining 14 years of a 20 year lease from a, uh, 49 year old vegetarian restaurant, which I believe was the first vegetarian restaurant in New York city. So if you take 1985 minus 49, that's pretty early. Um, yeah. And back in night in the 1930s, when it opened vegetarianism, was absolutely a political movement. It was not a nutritional uh, choice. It was a political choice, which I guess to some degree it remains today. But 
you know, the, the owner of that restaurant, I was just walking through the city for like two or three months trying to find the right place to open. I had been in Italy cooking and France cooking um, because the only way I could gather the courage to tell my parents that I was going to go into the restaurant business was to tell them that I wanted to be a chef. And believe it or not, back then, being a restaurateur was so looked down on that the the only um, only respectable thing I could say is I was going to be a chef. Because even back in 1984, when this was, we were starting to hear about some um, really, really smart people who had become chefs. And, and you know, some of them already had become quite famous. Uh, Jeremiah Tower, Alice Waters, uh, Paul Prudhomme. Um, you know, the list went on and on and on. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, I, I, I found this space and, um, that became Union Square Cafe. And, and I, I just wanted to create a restaurant that if it only existed would be my favorite restaurant in the world. And so that's how I designed it. And it, it was different than any restaurant I had ever been to because it was, it was kind of like writing a new piece of music. And, you know, if you've ever written a piece of music, uh, which I haven't, but if you ever have, have. (laughs) you know that there's a finite number of notes uh, that you can pick from, right? There's eight notes in an octave and five black uh, notes as well. And every song in the universe pretty much comes from those notes. Well, same thing with restaurants. And so I was borrowing notes that uh, had struck a chord with me. Um, throughout my life. uh, And what I learned was that I was happiest in the restaurant experiences that I had had in uh, some combination of Italy and primarily trattorias, France and primarily bistros, and Northern California and primarily cafes and barn, you know, the barn grill of of the Mm -hmm. 1980s. And what they all had in common, even though the food was different, obviously at a trattoria or bistro or you know San Francisco or Berkeley or wherever, what they all had in common was that they put really good stuff on the plate and in the glass, but without the pomp and circumstance uh, and refinement and you know perfectionism and and snootiness that would often come from the restaurants that were most famous back in, in those days, which were restaurants that usually were low this, la that, eel, that's, those were the restaurants that got the top ratings, in, certainly in New York. Uh, mm-hmm. And I didn't want to be fancy. I just wanted to be relaxed and really, really good. And so that's what Union which Square Cafe became. And was it a hit right from the start, or did it take time? I mean, obviously, it wasn't what it is today, but how long did it take until you felt like, okay, this, this is something and I can do this and then felt the confidence to open other restaurants? Well, it took 10 years to open a second restaurant. So that's a long time, a decade. <laughs> yes. And so Union Square Cafe is going to be 35 years old um, Wow. in October of 2020. So uh, it's been around for a long time and it still has the heart and soul of Union Square Cafe. Um, but I, it, it never dawned on me that there would be a second restaurant ever. So, you know, Mm -hmm. the fact that it took me almost a third of my entire career to open a second restaurant should tell you something. I felt like an imposter from the beginning. I felt like, you know, this is all luck. I don't know what I'm doing. And in fact, I didn't know what I was doing. The only thing that I, I knew really, really well, uh, intuitively, is that it mattered to me that people left happier than they came. And I was really, really good at assessing to some degree how people felt when they came and how they felt while they were there. And, and it also mattered to me to, to have really good food. And I, and I knew the difference uh, between good food and also good wine. And back then, you have to understand, there weren't many restaurants like Union Square Cafe. So we had this whole playing field really to ourselves. You had fancy restaurants on one hand and you had mediocre chain restaurants on the other hand, but you just didn't have kind of a breezy place 
uh, you didn't have a menu that had confit of duck, um, you know, which was straight from France alongside of a pasta dish or a risotto that was straight from Milan alongside of, you know, a Asian inflected dish. Your burger. Yeah. Or a also burger. Also the Union Square burger. And so it was a, amazing. It was a different kind of restaurant. And, um, I wanted to, so I, I knew good food and I knew how to make people happy. And the other thing I knew, um, even though I didn't know anything about how to run a restaurant is I knew how to hire, I knew how to spot and hire really nice people. And, and I, and that, that really became Union Square Cafe's calling card. And then I think, I hope the calling card of all of our places since that. I think absolutely. And that was one thing I wanted to touch on because for me, I mean, I've dined at almost all of your restaurants in New York. I think that's safe to say. And a few, many and many of times as it is where we celebrate most of our family gatherings. And there's just something different about the people who work in your restaurants in comparison to others. Um, And I think that that's a pillar of Union Square Hospitality Group. And you've said publicly before that there are six traits that you feel are required for hiring a potential employee. Can you kind of walk us through what those six traits are? Yeah. And I would call them emotional skills because they are skills uh, because they're emotional skills and not technical skills. I don't know how to teach anybody to have them Right. In degrees that they don't have. And what I do know how to do is to let people know, here's why you got hired, because we spotted these six emotional skills. We think you've got them at a pretty high level. This is what we really prize here. This is the kind of thing we'll be talking about. When you do a great job at any of these things, we will be celebrating that. Um, and that's weird for people because they've never heard that in their other business where all they're supposed to do is focus on food cost percentage and you know, yield and all those other business terms. Uh, and so, yeah, the six, the six things that when, look, we still need to have someone who's great at the technical skills. If you're a pasta maker, you better make great pasta. If you're a fish cook, right. You better make the fish really well, but that's not enough for us. As a matter of fact, we say that we want to get a hundred on our test and the most points we'll get for how good you are at what you do is 49. And that leaves 51 points for who you are while you're doing them. And I would, I would say that by naming those things early on for people, and they know that we do prize that and, and, and we do reward that, and we do celebrate that, it really helps people to understand, to let themselves be themselves and to understand that they were hired for who they are even more than for how good they are at what they do. So here they are. First one is... Um, kindness and optimism. And I'll make it real simple. I, I could actually stop this whole conversation by saying, if you look at someone and you say that person has kind eyes, that kind of tells me everything I need to know. Because by the time you're old enough to be hired in one of our restaurants, those eyes have been living an entire life up to then, they've been smiling and crying and worried and angry and all the things that actually uh, cannot be lied about. You, they either look mm-hmm. you in the eye or they don't. They're smiling or they're not. And uh, by the way, that's why I'm not so worried about this period of time where people have to wear masks because you can smile right through your eyes if you want to. So yep, a smize. I'm looking, a smile for, I'm looking for kind eyes, but, but the real thing is kind optimism. Um, I'm looking for people who believe that their actions can actually make someone's day that you have to be optimistic to do that. Secondly, I'm looking for people who are intellectually curious, uh, people who don't look at themselves as being a finished product, who do look at themselves as being somebody who can, um, learn something new every single day. Third, I'm looking for someone who's got a great work ethic, who, in addition to learning how something should be done actually cares a little bit more about doing that thing as well as they've ever done it before. And then the fourth uh, emotional skill we're looking for is empathy. Somebody who can actually walk in someone else's shoes, who cares how that person feels, 
and 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 maybe even more importantly, who's aware of how they are making that other person feel. I think mm-hmm. uh, it's just a crucially important thing in the world of hospitality. And then fifth, which is connected to that, is self-awareness. Somebody who knows what their own personal weather report is on any given day. No one is expected to be, you know, sunny and 72 degrees and no humidity uh, <laughs> probably more than once a year because the weather's not even like that more than once a year. But um, if if you are having one of those days, you know, spread it. To make sure everybody gets a piece of it. If you're having a day that's hot and humid and gray and rainy or whatever, go do something about that because hospitality is a team sport and you got to be responsible for what you're bringing to the team. You know, in the same way that if you were a professional athlete, you don't get to strike out just because you had a a bad day at home before you came to work. You've got to be a professional and bring your best stuff there and deal with it. That starts with being aware of, of where you are emotionally. And then the sixth one, uh, it maybe should have been the first because it's sort of a gating issue, and that's integrity, which is having mm-hmm. the judgment to do the right thing even when no one else is looking and even when it may not be in your own self-interest. So now let's go back through that really, really quickly. If we've got someone who is the best grill cook we've ever had, and we know that the reason that they care about doing such a great job is because of how it's going to make other people feel, how how good someone's going to feel when they eat their dish. Um, that's the person I want to hire because there's probably six right. really good grill cooks. And here's what I'll end with. You can, you can see this in, in little kids actually at an early age, whether they have what we call a high HQ, um, high mm-hmm. HQ, high hospitality quotient is someone who's happier themselves when they're making someone else feel better. That's what these six emotional skills add up to. And you can see it in a kid uh, very easily by giving them that famous yellow bag of chocolate chips from Nestle's. And on the back of it are the instructions. Every kid has made these in their life. And what's great about it is that you learn a lot of things as a kid. You learn how to do some math. You learn measurement. You learn timing. You learn uh, consequences. You learn uh, self-restraint because when those cookies come out, you want to yes. eat them all. But but here's the kicker. Having learned all that stuff, uh, you also can learn what actually gave the kid the most pleasure. Was it eating all those cookies? Uh, or was it the joy they got when they presented that plate to their family and saw mm-hmm. A, how proud the family was of them, but but even more importantly, how happy their family was eating those cookies. And that's, you show me that kid, I want to hire them in about 10 years. <laughs> well, I think all of those emotional characteristics you just listed, I mean, not only do they make for a great employee, but they make for just a great person. And I think it's applicable to so much because hospitality is Sure, I guess you could kind of try and say it's one industry, but I think it's applicable to all industries. No matter what you're doing, people want to feel loved and seen and taken care of and appreciated. And I think that's what you've managed to lay out in not an equation, but in such a detailed way in that hiring process. Hello. Sorry about that. I'm very sorry. <laughs> that's okay. Oh my God, don't worry. Um, I'm surprised Charlie's not in here actually. But it's an incredible way to go about hiring because it really shows on the back end as a customer that that effort has been put in because it re- there really is a difference in my opinion. And I'm also just curious because, I mean, I know this based off of reading about you and research, but Shake Shack started as a hot dog stand because you were set on trying to I don't know if revamp is the right word, but like assist in building and growing Madison Square Park. Is that a fair assessment? That's absolutely true. Shake Shack was the best accident I think I've ever had. I was going to say, because that, I mean, all of your restaurants are amazing, but Shake Shack has nationally just blown up. It's everywhere now. And I'm so amazed of how 
not that it's a simple idea, but you took a very simplistic approach in the sense of we're going to have cheeseburgers, shakes, crinkle fries, and hot dogs. And it did what it did. And did you ever in a million years expect that to happen? No, I never expected Shake Shack to work in one location. You know, we had a hot dog cart to support Madison Square Park you know, by bringing art to the park. And it just turned out that that artist uh, from Thailand wanted to have a working hot dog cart go with these big taxi cabs up on stilts. And we said we would do it. And I had a personal mission uh, to figure, we, we had some excess space in our private dining room at, at a restaurant we used to own called 11 Madison Park, uh, overlooking the park. We had excess. I've heard of it maybe once or twice. <laughs> we had some extra <laughs> space in our private dining room. And I said, we can actually cook the food in our private dining room. And we can give a job to five out-of-season coat checkers because this was the summer of uh, 2001, unfortunately, leading up to 9-11. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I wanted to test out my theories about hospitality. And, and I had been kind of frustrated hearing some people say, yeah, hospitality is only for fancy restaurants. And I wanted to see if it actually could make a difference even with a hot dog cart. So that's why we picked Chicago-style hot dogs, because they have eight classic toppings. And I wanted to see if we could memorize, um, you know, people's, er, almost everyone who eats a Chicago-style hot dog wants to have some alteration to it. Very few people right. like all eight things. Um, I don't like mustard. Give me ketchup. I don't like pickle relish. Leave it off. Whatever. And that was it. It was just supposed to be an experiment, and I had absolutely no idea that it would end up having 60 to 100 people in line every day. And we brought it back for three straight years with the hot dog cart, even though the art had moved on. And it wasn't until year four that we turned it into a a kiosk. And I just, you know, wrote down on a piece of paper, a lot of my favorite foods from growing up in St. Louis. We had these smashed cheeseburgers. We had frozen custard. We had great milkshakes. And so, yeah, you're right. There's absolutely nothing inventive about Shake Shack. And to this day, I kind of scratch my head and say, well, <laughs> why did it work so well? And I think a big part of it is hospitality. I think that mm-hmm. uh, I think McDonald's, which, you know, I don't I don't know the last time I've been to a McDonald's, but I'd ha- I couldn't possibly argue if someone were to say that's the most successful and prolific scaled fast food brand in the history of the world. And, you know, Ray Kroc, who's, uh, you know, has been chronicled. His genius yeah. was that he figured out a system whereby the food would be consistently uh, the same, no matter where you got it, anywhere in the world. The fries would not taste different, et cetera, et cetera. And so Shake Shack will never, ever be anywhere nearly as big as McDonald's, which is fine. But I bet Ray Kroc didn't think about a system for scaling hospitality. And that's what Shake Shack Mm -hmm. is really, really focused on, uh, as well as much, much better ingredients. Because I was going to say the ingredients play a huge role. And that if, if Shake Shack had one innovation from a food standpoint, it was that 100% of our ingredients were the same ingredients we were using at Gramercy Tavern and Union Square Cafe and Tabla and 11 Madison Park. And 100% of the people who were um, leading the, the business had come from and still have come from our fine dining restaurants. Um, the CEO, Randy Garudi, had been director of operations uh, for Union Square Hospitality Group. He had been the GM at Union Square Cafe and Tabla. To this day, the director of, of our supply chain um, is someone who had been doing that at the Modern for us. The head of culinary mm-hmm. uh, came from Union Square Cafe, Union Square Events. The next one came from Gramercy Tavern. And so you don't see too many chains where the lineage of the people who are, are leading it came from fine dining. So these guys all had to learn the skills to scale their good taste. Um, and they've done that. And I think that it's been an advantage for Shake Shack because, quite frankly, when we got into business back in 19, 
excuse me, it was 2004 is when Shake Shack started with its first one. So in 2004, you just didn't see what I call fine casual. You saw lots of chains that knew the systems, but they didn't know how to retrofit good taste, you know, in terms of ingredients and culinary technique and design and and community relations and all the kind of things that we've always done with our, our full service fine dining restaurants. So it's a pretty cool story. And um, there's now over 300 in the entire world. Incredible. Including something like 15 different countries uh, beyond the United States. Wow. I would be remiss not to share my Shake Shack story because if my mom, who I know will listen to this, she would get so mad at me if I didn't tell you this. And I don't think I've ever told you this story before. But when I was an intern at JP Morgan, it was my first summer there. And it was the Friday before July 4th. And everyone was like, why are we here? This is so silly. And the woman who I was interning for turned to me and was like, let's get Warren to buy our desk Shake Shack. I feel like that would make everyone happy. I said, okay, like I'll go around and take everyone's order. And our desk was maybe 10 to 15 people. And so I, we go to the MD Warren and we're like, Warren, well, not me, but she was. Warren, do you want to get the group Shake Shack? I feel like everyone's kind of down because they're here Friday before July 4th. It'll make everyone happy. He's like, yeah, of course. Cameron, here's my credit card, blah, blah, blah. Somehow it got word out to the other desks on the trading floor. And it then became the entire trading floor was getting Shake Shack for lunch. <laughs> and it was me and two other interns that were in charge of getting it. And it was probably 1030. And we were like, okay, we'll go to the Madison Square Park location. We can walk. It's like 20 blocks away. It was a gorgeous day. And I guess we like, we realized how many orders we had to get, but we didn't really put it into perspective. So we get there. And at the time, I don't know if you guys still have the camera for the line at Madison Square yeah, Park. Yeah, we still, that's the only camera we ever had yeah. and we still have it. So the traders were now on the, like watching the live webcam, texting the interns, the other male intern I was with to like do ridiculous stuff for the camera, like typical (laughs) trading floor debauchery. And we get to the front and I'm like, hi, we would like a hundred cheeseburgers, 50 milkshakes and 75 orders of fries. And they were like, ma'am, I'm so sorry. And this was in 2012. So it was like prime time, Shake Shack time. And we're at 2011. And they're like, ma'am, I'm so sorry. We can't complete that order here. Like, we'll, you, we'll have to call in half at the Upper West Side. So I'm like, okay, okay, we can make that work. So like one of us waits there. The other one, but I misunderstood them. And they told me Upper West Side. I somehow went to the Upper East Side. It was like, <laughs> for an intern, no. it was my, like, all of a sudden, I was just getting like lunch for my desk, and then it turned into me getting a hundred plus burgers for the entire trading floor. I will never forget the moment. Like, I was in a full sweat panic because I was like bopping around to make sure I had everything. The milkshakes were melting because it was so hot out, and I was taking so long to oh get my back. God. And I, I can't was imagine so how bad the, the fries tasted by the time they got no, there. No, the, everything. The funny part of the whole story is, is that everyone was very appreciative and happy with the meal. I definitely got a lot of shit for how long it took me, but that was on us, not on Jake Shack. But forever, like when I pass by Madison Square Park, I have this moment of like anxiety because I felt so stressed about not getting back in time and making sure I had everything. And my mom's like, that is still my favorite Jake Shack story. So right, I had so to who share gets, it with who you gets the and credit, everyone else. Who gets the credit for your persistence, Cindy or Judd? Oh gosh, my mom, she's a jackhammer. That's what we call her. She does not give up. She is just like, go, 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 go. Like, will not stop until something is done. God bless her. That's great. She gets the persistence. Um, And I'm curious how you must feel when you enter Madison Square Park now because it's so evolved and so popular and crowded 24-7. I mean, you played a huge role in that. I I can say that. So how like what emotions do you have when you walk through the park now? I have incredible pride. I mean, this was from the very first day we started negotiating our leases um, in 1997 for 11 Madison Park and Tabla. The very first conversation before we got to any of the numbers, and our landlord back then was MetLife Insurance, was we asked them if they would join us in helping to restore the park. Because I knew that the as went the park, so would go the restaurants, which is part of the reason, one of the worst names I ever came up with in all my years of naming restaurants, 
was 11 Madison Park. No one could remember the name. <laughs> but I wanted to purposely name it after the park to force us, as we had done with Gramercy Tavern and Union Square Cafe, not only to mm-hmm. associate ourselves with a park, but to care deeply for the, the safety and beauty and usability of the park. And they said they would do it as long as I would take a leadership role. And I did. And um, I helped to found the uh, campaign for a new Madison Square Park and then to found the, uh, the Madison Square Park Conservancy, uh, where I served as an executive board member for many, many years. And, and so when I go to the park to this day, I just feel, I feel a lot of uh, happiness. I love seeing mm-hmm. people using it. I love watching people eat. That's one of the gets back to your very first question. Yeah. Um, by the way, that that is a weirdness. Uh, you know, part of the reason <laughs> we we have a company called Union Square Events, and Union Square Events uh, serves food in ballparks like City Field, and even mm-hmm. down near you in Philadelphia, um, we serve food. And uh, I'll be the guy in center field walking around with my baseball cap and sunglasses on and just looking at people eating and watching to see, do they like the ribs from Blue Smoke? Do they like the burger from Shake Shack? Do they like the tacos from El Verano? Um, I just love it. And, you know, so I'll do that in Madison Square Park, too. It's a little hard because a lot of times people come up to me and Right, <laughs> and my wife Audrey says all the time, "Danny, you got to stop doing that. People know who you are." But I, I, <laughs> it doesn't really matter to me what they think of me because my motives are good. I want to see that, that they're right. enjoying it. I've even like done that on Delta, where uh, Union Square Events makes food on the transcontinental flights for Delta's first class seats, and I've even walked up and down the aisles watching people eating our food, trying to. See- I think I actually. I don't know where I was definitely on my parents' budget, but we flew somewhere and I remember getting a menu first class and it was Union Square. And I was like, what? Are you kidding me? It was like the highlight of the whole flight. I was ecstatic. Oh, I can't wait till that returns. That's, you know, with, with COVID, that was one yeah. of the things that Delta gave up um, a lot of their food service, but we'll get back to it. Mm-hmm. We will get back. And I want to dive into that in a second. But first, I'm curious, what is your favorite characteristic about yourself? Yeah, yeah, that's it. <laughs> you threw that one in from left field. I know. I, I think it's it's actually connected to the question I was asking you, which is persistence. Which is, you know, if I were if I were a racehorse and you kicked me, I would run faster. Um, mm-hmm. If you cheer for me, I'll run faster. Um, I just, I never met a a problem that I didn't feel like I wanted to try to solve. And some, some problems you can, some problems you can. One of the hardest things about this uh, period of time when we've had to keep our restaurants closed uh, on the in, indoors has been that it's, there's no amount of intellect or hard work that can overcome a force uh, yep. like COVID. And so that's been a hard thing, but I do, I hope I I hope I never stop always trying. Yeah, I mean that's what that like it's the saying of how many times you get knocked off the horse it doesn't matter until you get back, like as long as you're getting back on it doesn't matter how many times you get knocked off. Bingo. And given everything that's happening I'd be remiss not to bring this up but you were very early on in the COVID stage, I guess, of closing restaurants. And then you publicly announced that you were donating 100% of your paycheck to your employees, assistant funds. And you then raised, I think now it's over like one and a half million for the employees that you had laid off. Yeah, actually close. We're, we're hoping to hit 2 million Amazing. before the end of the year, but we're, we're, getting, we're getting closer. Wow. And so can you kind of just walk us through what that was like mentally as not only a restaurant owner, but I mean, now you run a massive business that is obviously focused on an industry that was being forced to close. Like, how did you come to this decision that you made with donating your paycheck and creating this fund? I think it's obvious because it shows who you are as a person, but I just can't imagine being in that situation. And I would love just a bit to have you walk us through mentally what that looked like. 
the the really really hard part was coming to grips with the the notion of laying off over two thousand people, mm-hmm. and even at that, we were keeping on our team at that point something like a hundred and fifty people because I just didn't want to cut down to the bone. We knew we right. were not going to be able to open our restaurants. We had no idea how long this was going to go on. This was back in uh, you know at the end of March. Mm-hmm. And having having made that choice that if we put ourselves out of business, uh, we won't be able to employ these people anyway. So just a horrible Hobson's choice, really. And once I made that choice, I just said, we have to do right by these people because I do believe we will reopen at some point. Mm-hmm. I believe that there will be some point when we can hire back a team. I don't know if it'll be these people because uh, some people may leave New York for good, but right. let's let's still treat these people as if they are family. And so it was not after that a very hard choice at all to cut my uh, compensation down to nothing. Um, and and then as we set up this 501c3, which we called the Hugs Fund, uh, it's a sort of an anagram for USHG is hugs. Oh, I love that. Uh, that that I would rather pay my compensation to that than have it paid to me. Mm-hmm. And so that that part was not hard. Um, I wanted to be able to sleep at night. And if you've spent your whole career trying to build a team and build an organization. And then you have to dismantle it, poof, overnight. There's enough really, really hard feelings that go with that without also saying, and meanwhile, I'm doing just fine. And, and by the way, I am doing just fine. But it wasn't a hard decision to, to say, I, I want to be able, I, I also wanted to be able to ask uh, of the 150 people, who, by the way, through two additional cuts, got down to 50 at its lowest. We're now back up to about 200, uh, thanks to outdoor dining. But I wanted to be able to ask those who were still on the team to take a small pay cut. And I knew that the only moral ground I would have in order to to ask them to take a small pay cut was to take a full pay cut myself. So that, that part wasn't hard. What was really hard were the decisions to say, we don't have a job for you. And I, and I, I don't know when we will, because mm-hmm. I don't know how this story is going to play out. I wish someone had the answers. But I know if anyone will survive, it will be you and your restaurants, because, I mean, not only are they a New York staple, but the love and, I mean, it's just, it's very admirable for what you're doing, and I think it shines through. And given that we're kind of getting to the end of the episode and we're talking about all of your restaurants, I have to ask, I know I can't make you choose a favorite restaurant, but what about a favorite dish that you've had at any of your restaurants? Mm. Uh, That's a really, really tough question. I know. You know, I'm a pretty simple guy. If you give me, I, I could do a roving I could do a roving meal at all of the restaurants, but yeah. that, that's gonna that's not gonna be fair. I'd say if if, the, <laughs> if I really had to have just one, it could be it could be a dish that we serve at the modern and everybody gets it to start their, their meal in the dining room. It's it's called eggs on eggs on eggs. And it's it is so good that no matter what you're talking about with whomever you're with, the conversation stops because you both Silence. cannot stop groaning. That's how good it is, and it's so. What is in this dish? Eggs and eggs and eggs. Um, <laughs> there's <laughs> there's thank you. There's uh, there's like a sabayon at the base. Uh, there's a poached egg yolk. It's, I'm saying it's poached. The chef will kill me because it's like slow cooked for about a day. There's caviar, there's chive oil, and there's 
this amazing buttered uh, soldier of brioche that you just dip in and you just, Yum. You, you can, it's great whether you have a little bite of sabayon on its own or a little bite of the egg on its own or a little bite of the caviar. But what's really great is just to kind of mess up the whole thing. You should just um, go to. I need to get my yeah, hands on Yeah, go to that. Instagram or search pictures uh, for the modern eggs on eggs on eggs. You'll see a picture somewhere. Someone has I'm to have sure. taken a picture of this. And it just, yeah, I could, I could wear that on my face. Yum. I will say one of my favorite desserts of all time is a dessert I had at Gramercy Tavern that I think of all the time. Does and it, it have like tapioca ban- in it? No, it was a it was a banoffee something. Oh, yeah. Oh my god! We went. I think it was my birthday, like two years ago. Joe and I went, and we sat in the tavern. I I dream of it like all all the time. It was amazing. And then to close, I know I kind of hinted at this earlier, but what would be the three ways to your heart through food? Oh, it's so simple! You can't believe it. It would be. Um, I I would. I would say I'd be I'd probably be in Rome or somewhere in Tuscany and I'd I'd have a platter of salumi and some mm-hmm. chicken liver mousse and then I'd have an amazing bowl of pasta and then I'd have an incredible steak grilled over wood and I'd have uh white beans drowned in olive oil and black pepper and uh as much wine as I could possibly drink without stumbling. And that would be my meal. That sounds like heaven. Joe and I went to Montepulciano last year and we sat there in like this cobblestone side street and devoured this massive charcuterie board and then bowls of pasta and like two bottles of wine. And I think it was the happiest I've ever been in my life. (laughs) Truly. I dream about it. Um, well, thank you so much for being on here. And I also, I do want to give a shout out because ice cream is my favorite food. I talk about it all the time on my platform. I've talked about Cafe Pana before, but anyone listening, if you're in New York, you have to go check out Danny's daughter, Hallie's ice cream shop. It is, I mean, I I feel badly even calling it an ice cream shop because it's so much more, but it is so ridiculously delicious. So everyone must go try it. Oh, I can't wait to tell Hallie you said that. I'm so proud of her. I'm, I'm, I've like, I feel like I'm proud of her. I message her all the time. I'm like, dude, this is amazing. <laughs> and I've gone like four or five times every time I sent her a message saying how incredible it is. it is. So you must be so proud. She's been cooking her whole life. I mean, you know, she's a, un- unlike her dad, she was a great uh, student uh, through grade school, high school and, and college. But, you know, whereas I would go outside and play touch football with my friends, uh, to, to relax, she would just go downstairs and cook. And she is a really, really good cook. She, well, I follow her Instagram stories religiously, and I'm jealous of everything she's constantly making. So one day I will come over from, I'm inviting myself for family dinner because when I look at what you guys are making, I'm really jealous of what goes down in that kitchen. Mm. Um, well, thank you so much for being on here. Where is the best place for people to follow you? Would it be Instagram? I'm I'm the same handle on both Instagram and Twitter, Perfect. and it's uh, at dh Meyer. Awesome. Well, that'll be in the show notes. Um, everyone, I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. And Danny, thank you again for taking time for us. Thank you, Cami. Hello, my friends. I hope you guys enjoyed that episode as much as I did. I find Danny to be one of the most just inspiring people in the world, but especially in this industry. And he is just such a ray of light, inspiration, education, and motivation. So I really enjoyed recording that episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. I want to also say it was obviously recorded like pre any election thing. It was actually recorded, I think, end of September, so a while ago. I'm recording this right now Thursday. So the day before this releases, I tried to wait like as long as I could so that it could be as timely as possible. Right now, we still don't have the decision. It is just a continuous waiting game. So, you know, I've been getting very political on my stories, obviously. I have been doing that for a while. Um, I just want to thank 
everyone who sends me these sweet, kind messages supporting me speaking out. And, you know, it, it just means the world to me. And I get hundreds of those. And while there are every once in a while a few negative ones that can get to me, the supportive ones so heavily outweigh the negative. And you guys are the reason that I keep speaking. You guys are the reason that I share anything. You're the reason I have this platform. So I just want to say thank you. I really, really, really appreciate it Um, from the bottom of my heart. I am really proud of this Freckled Foodie family. And to the people who sliding into my DMs with these not nice things. I don't know. It just blows my mind. I just will never understand. So that's all I have to say about that. Um, I'm hoping by the time this episode releases, we have an answer. And it's the answer that this community is hoping for. And I mean, that's really all I can say because right now they're still waiting to count so many states. So I'm hopeful. I'm definitely scared of just the fact that it's this close, but I'm not surprised because we're seeing a side of this country that I think has always been there, but has just been, you know, put under all of a sudden, not even a magnifying glass, but, you know, it got some gasoline thrown on its fire with our current president. So that's all I will say to that, because I did want this to be somewhat of a break from politics for you all since it's releasing this week. Um, Life update wise, today as I record this, I'm petting Charlie right now. Oh, he just came over to kind of get on the microphone. Do you want to say something? It's our gotcha day with Chaz. It's our one year anniversary of getting him. I have never in my life been happier with a decision or I could have, I really could not have ever imagined that he would change me as much as he did and have such an intense impact on my life. For those of you who guys who don't know, we adopted Charlie from Puerto Rico through Safe and Sound Satos. Um, the founder came on my show a long time ago. If you guys are considering getting a dog, I cannot recommend their shelter enough. That's also where Lucy got Kona from. They are just the cutest. Charlie is truly one of a kind. He was the only one that survived from his litter. And I just, he's changed everything for me. And he's my psycho. He's crazy. He's a fucking lunatic. But he's a lovable mush. And he's just like his mom. He's got many, many different personalities. Don't you, honey? Um, so that's exciting for us. We are headed to the city this weekend because I, quite honestly, and like every single time I do a Q&A, everyone's like, when are you going back to New York? When are you moving back to New York? I don't know. I really wish I had the answers. Um, but... The reason we're here is because Joe is still working from home and we have a one bedroom apartment without an office. And while I would be able to work, obviously I do work from home, I'd be fine and I'd be fine with Charlie there and I would be fine with Joe there. Joe's work is way more like call and presentation based and there's no space for him to have any type of privacy. So we've been living at my parents. I'm so grateful that we've been able to do this, but you know, Joe... This fits in Joe's current life perfectly. You know, he's got an office, he he works all day, he's busy, and he's getting to see his friends outdoors on the weekend when he golfs. But for me, like, I'm just in this home. I feel so lonely um, because none of my friends are here. All of my friends are in New York. And, you know, a lot of my work, it sounds weird, but is like also doing a ton of stuff around the city and sharing what I'm doing. And I miss it so much. And so I have, we have compromised on going back for like a week and we will just make it work for work purposes and we'll see how it goes. So we're going back on Saturday for the week. I'm very excited. I just miss New York with my entire heart and I'm excited to see a few of my close friends outdoors and distanced and just spend time in the city and, you know, such little things I really miss. Like, even going to the grocery store, like getting in a car and having to drive 15 minutes to a grocery store is just so different than like walking even the 10 blocks I have to walk. Like there's just something about New York and really any city, but the proximity of everything is just something else. Um, other than that, I kind of feel like 
there's not too much going on over here. I did just binge The Queen's Gambit on Netflix and I cannot recommend it enough. I loved it so much. I'm not a chess person at all. I have no idea how to play and I'm usually not a time period piece fan. I thought it was so incredible. So if you're looking for some type of distraction right now during this week, I highly recommend watching it. I thought it was so good. Other than that, I hope by the time you guys are listening to this, we have more answers and, you know, I really am hopeful even just hearing Biden speak yesterday and Wednesday, like the effort and desire to unite our very extremely divided country is giving me hope for our potential future. So I hope you guys have some more answers as you're listening to this. And I hope you have a wonderful weekend. As always, if you enjoyed the show, please rate and or review and take screenshots and share it on your Instagrams. Tag all of the appropriate Freckled Foodie at FF and Friends Pod accounts so we can repost them. I love hearing your guys' feedback. It's the reason I do this show. So have a great day. You guys, thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Freckled Foodie and Friends. It really means the world to me. It means more to me than you could ever know. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please head over to wherever you consume your podcast and rate and or review the show. It not only helps the show's growth, but it really makes my day when I go through and read all of the reviews. If you aren't already, please follow along over on Instagram at Freckled Foodie for my way too active channel and at FF and Friends Pod for more information on the podcast. I hope you have a wonderful day and I can't wait to give you the next episode.